There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Friday, December 15th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sounds a little different. I'm talking to you from Chicago, and this is just how Chicago sounds, or Chicago hotel room after taping. Wait, wait, don't tell me. I don't want to step on any of the jokes, but uh, Roy Moore comes in for some mockery. But also Donald Trump, because I am an American, and it is 2017, and we need to make jokes. As you've heard on the show, I often kind of think about, well, there's the substance of what Trump does, his actual policies, and often his incompetence gets in the way of that. And then there's what he represents and how he makes us feel. And so what I really try to think about is how real is how he makes us feel. I'm kind of on the one end of the continuum of the feelings are real belief system. But there is a reality to it. I mean, how he makes us feel could have something to do with that he offends us by legitimizing bigotry. He offends us by trampling through the norms that have held up our society. But also how he makes us feel just that the bully is winning. And then sometimes I say to myself, well, you know, His policies are pretty much the same policies that any Republican would put in place. This is the would Mike Pence really be better argument. And it's very hard to argue that Pence would be worse just because the chances of a huge cataclysm increase with Trump and also the perfidy, the self-dealing. But look at what's going on in Congress and look at what's going on with his judicial nominations. The tax bill is terrible, but it's what any Republican would do. We have proof of that. 90-something percent of the Republicans in the House and Senate are doing it. And net neutrality seems to be a bad thing for you and I as users of the internet, but every Republican vote on the FCC is for it. And even when net neutrality was put into place under the Obama administration, the FCC was a three to two Democrat to Republican body and all the Republicans voted again. It's just a classic Republican thing to want to do away with uh, net neutrality. But then it comes to the courts. And recently we had an example of a judicial nominee named Matthew Spencer Peterson being grilled by Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. It went viral. Let's hear some of that. Yes. Can you tell me what the uh, Dobear standard is? Uh, Senator Kennedy, I, I don't have that uh, readily at, uh, at my disposal, uh, but I would be happy to take a, a closer look at that. The Dobear Doctrine? How do you not know the Dobear Doctrine? It used to be the Dobear Rapport. Dobear is playing a character. No, I don't know the Dobear Doctrine, but apparently legal minds tell me that any decent second-year law student would know about the Dobear Doctrine. The Dobear Doctrine has to do with uh, the standard to admit expert testimony. Okay, I found that out, but, you know, Peterson probably should have done a little research beforehand, but he didn't know that the senators would ask him actual questions. I love this line of questioning. Betsy DeVos, her knowledge was exposed when she didn't know about different standards of education and special education. Just ask factual questions. You might embarrass yourself if you put a lot of ego in it, but just out of curiosity, ask some factual questions with a candidate that you think might not be qualified. And then Senator Kennedy asked about limine. Do you know what a motion in limine is? Uh, yes, I haven't. Um, I'm, I'm, again, my uh, background is not uh, in litigation as, as uh, when I was replying to uh, Chairman Grassley. Um, I haven't had to, um, again, do a deep dive. And I, under, and I, and I understand, and, and I appreciate this, this line of questioning. I understand 
uh, the challenge that would be ahead of me if I were fortunate enough to become a district court judge. I understand that, um, that the path that many successful district court judges have taken has been a different one than I have taken. Mm -hmm. um, but I, as I mentioned in my earlier answer, I believe that the, the path that I have taken um, to be one who's been in a decision-making role um, on, uh, I would guess now, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 enforcement matters, mm -hmm. um, overseeing, I, I don't know how many uh, cases in federal right. court yes, the commission sure. is, has uh, been a party to during my time. Yes, sir. I've, I've read your... Yeah. Your resume. Um, just for the record, do you know what a motion in limine is? I would probably not be able to give you a good definition okay. right here at the, ta at the uh, okay. table. Now, if it was Kellyanne Conway, she, she would have gotten out of that really well, right? Well, I think you know, Anderson, that the American... Uh, my name's Kennedy. I think you know, Kennedy Anderson, that the American people didn't elect Donald Trump to plumb the depths of limine. Yeah, but do you know what limine is? I know that when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And Donald Trump is here to do that, Anderson. Why are you calling me Anderson? Anderson, I think we both know what limony is. So what limony is, is it's, it's a limit to what the, yeah, and that's where it comes from. It's a limit to what the jury hears, sort of pretrial discussion about what the jury is going to hear. And it is quite shocking that this guy, who wants to be on a very important court, the D.C. Circuit Court, just doesn't have the experience. And I, for one, as a citizen, am glad this was exposed. Of course, Donald Trump has nominated a couple other guys who are deemed not qualified by the American Bar Association, and one or two have been withdrawn, but another not qualified judicial nominee, Leonard Stephen Graz, has been, in fact, passed from that committee, and it looks like he's going to be on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. So is Donald Trump nominating less qualified people than any regular Republican? Would I think so? This is a consequence of living in a cacistocracy when the worst people are asked to make the decisions. I just wish we had made a motion in limine before this whole thing started. On the show today, I spiel about the passing of, insofar as there is an institution called Sports Talk Giant, this guy's won. But first, he's the Roast Master General. It's such a good title. It's not a rotating position. Only Jeff Ross lays claim to it. And the interesting thing is what he's doing with that title. Some of the uh, most compelling comedy out there. Very daring. Jeff Ross is here. He's roasted Charlie Sheen, Justin Bieber, Hugh Hefner. He's roasted cops. He's roasted criminals. Well, I mentioned Charlie Sheen, didn't I? <laughs> he's, he's roasted. Now he's on to geographic entities because Jeff Ross is roasting the border. The name of the special is Jeff Ross Roasts the Border, yep. live from Brownsville, Texas. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is for you. People listen at different times. That's what I figured. It might be three months from now. Thanks for having me on. After this one, a Peabody or something. See that? <laughs> Maybe. So, live from Brownsville, Texas, right. this side of the border that you roasted. Barely. How? Yeah, yeah. You could touch the other side. Right. First, let's talk logistics, and then I want to get into how the roast has evolved. So, it seems, I know you have experience uh, working with the prison system, right. working with uh specific police precincts. Who'd you have to set it up through to roast the border? I believe we worked with the town of the city of Brownsville. We met with them a couple times, and we also went down there. I actually went down there myself. And you talk to uh, 
I forgot Gil's last name, darn it. But uh, Salinas. Gil Salinas showed us around. And this and is Ed Larson, who's uh, a producer of this special. Hello, Ed. He How joins you doing? in. What's yes, going on? he'll fill in, he'll fill in Jeff on all the fine details. But go ahead. Whatever you know, I yeah. remember the jokes. I don't always remember the names. <laughs> yeah. But um, and we got permission to do a show in Hope Park, which is really just a little park along the along the fence. People don't realize, you know, there's a, there is an existing border fence. Yeah. We talk about build that wall, build that wall, but there is a fence that goes right through the middle of Brownsville. And we somehow talked the city into letting me set up a little stage and essentially roast migrants as they cross over into America. Now, I saw that there was a shot of the poster that you put up for free free outdoor concert, but the poster was in Spanish. Right. I was wondering about the wisdom of that because <laughs> your jokes are all in English. <laughs> I, as long as I had a crowd, I didn't care if they laughed. So, <laughs> uh, and I did, you know, break into my broken Spanish a couple of times during the show. Yeah. But I wanted the local community to know that I was trying to come at it as a, uh, not as a carpetbagger, but I was going to live there for a week and try to really understand the issue. And before I even got there, um, I spent maybe six months researching and writing a stand-up act just for them. And it seems that you know a lot, but you don't deluge us with information. In fact, it seems like your tactic is to connect to the human beings rather Mm -hmm. than the issues. It's not about politics. It's about people. And if I keep that mantra in my head, I can go on either side on any issue and back and forth and and not make it a political statement, but more about a human interest story. More people cross over illegally here than anywhere else along America's 2,000-mile border. So our government built this fence through Brownsville a decade ago to keep the strangers out. It hasn't worked. They still come. 304, go ahead. I have two individuals walking up to me. Any way they can. I talked to a a father and son from... uh, El Salvador, who were just moments after they came over on a raft. This, and to explain, you're doing a ride along with the Hidalgo County Sheriff or right. Police or uh, Constables. Constables, who aren't part of ICE. They are the county employees. You're right. riding with them and you come across father son from El Salvador. As we waited for Border Patrol, the constables helped me use my broken Spanish to welcome two people into the country. Is your son? Yes. You see? Quantos años? Cinco. Cinco. Hola, buddy. Hola. Me llamo Jeff. Ese mismo número. These are people escaping El Salvador, which has the number two murder rate per capita in the world. Yeah. You know, this father does not want his son, you know, being uh, bullied into joining a gang. And he's escaping. And he's not coming over for economic reasons. He's coming over for his own safety. So this is so demeaning to me. You know, these people can't do it the right way. We hear about, you know, why don't they come over the right way? These people don't have 10 years to wait for uh, their immigration status to be approved. And to explain, in between the live concert, you tell a little bit about your own story. You have these interstitial scenes with people who are dreamers or these people who are coming over the border. That was amazing to me because there were three groups there. Mm-hmm. There were you, there were the family, and there were the uh, the Hidalgo uh, County police. And all three groups were doing their job. Right. Right? The dad was doing his job as a dad. You get your kid to a better place. The cops were doing their job. They weren't mean about it. They were being professional. Right. And you were doing your job, making a couple jokes. And trying to make things easier, <laughs> but yet, yet with all with people just doing their job, there's no answer. I mean, it's actually at cross purposes. Well, it's still a conundrum, even though everyone are good people doing their jobs. That's another thing about the border community. You know, 
And the reason I wanted to go to the border is because I wondered what people who actually live along the fence think about the wall and immigration. But if you go to a restaurant in Brownsville or anywhere in the Rio Grande Valley, you'll see a undocumented worker eating across from a border patrol agent, eating a taco in the same room as an immigration lawyer, as a coyote. You know, once the labels are off, they're just people living in this one big Rio Grande community. The fence is just this huge, weird inconvenience. Yeah. Everyone has family on both sides. Even the cops are of Mexican heritage. Mexican-Americans or they're Mexicans or their wife is Mexican. They have cousins that are Mexican. So the thing is very complicated for the people who actually live along the border. Now, it does seem to me that when I compare it to uh, cops and jails, because I saw both of those, that obviously you're against crime, but you come in and you really see those people as people, but you understand the necessity of incarceration. The same with cops. Like What I'm trying to say is you definitely not just see both sides, but I think if there were a teeter-totter or the scales of justice, you'd be right in the middle. Mm. But I do sense with this border issue, you're more, much more sympathetic to the immigrant. I think so. <sighs> you know, I guess when I when you actually meet the people and see the people, and I try to remember like when I was growing up, what immigration meant. I remember my grandfather telling me about, you know, his people who came over from Eastern Europe. And I remember him saying that he had to learn to work with the Irish construction workers. And when I was growing up in Newark, New Jersey, as a son of a caterer, we had a Russian guy helping me make salads and fruit, club, fruit cut. We had Haitian guys working in the uh, uh, washing dishes in the back. We had a we had a Hungarian guy making the jello molds. We had Scottish and Irish waitresses. And we were all different. Yeah. And we all had our differences, and sometimes we even screamed at each other. But we, f- we were forced to get along for the greater good of prosperity, uh, uh, of, of a community, of a business. And I think we lost sight of that somewhere in the last couple of years. You're not just uh, taking on topics or issues. You're taking on crises. Yeah. Tax reform is an issue. The yeah. three things... Police brutality, over-incarceration, what's going on in the border, those are crises. Right. Yeah. Does that help or hurt the comedy? Obviously, Elsie in the jail cell hurts it, but there's also the aspect of, like, the tension so high, the release of tension is so appreciated. I think tension, when dealt with directly, can be diffused by comedy. To me, it's about building up the pressure, building up the pressure, building up the pressure. You're watching this scene and then joke, release yeah. valve. Mm-hmm. Do these specials excite you more than a celebrity roast at this point? You know, it depends who the celebrity is. <laughs> when, when they announce a big celebrity roast, to me, it's like, you know, that's like my birthday. Like, I get so excited. Like, you're saying, you know, a month from now, you're going to have the best steak dinner of the year. Yeah. You know, so I start, like, really thinking about that. But I didn't want to always wait for Justin Bieber or James Franco or Rob Lowe or whoever we're roasting to say, yeah, I want to... You know, let's do it. I wanted to be able to bring the roast wherever I want. I got sick of being the roast guy without a roast. Be like, you know, being like uh, Babe Ruth, who only plays four games a year. I got a little antsy, so I started roasting people, places, and things. Yeah. <laughs> Next, Jeff Ross roasts giraffes. <laughs> hey, sticking your neck out for nothing, you stupid giraffe. What are you, look out for the hippos? <laughs> K Paso, Brownsville. <laughs> Stick around after the show, you guys, because we're going to break a pinata full of green cards if anybody wants to play along. 
Brownsville, Texas. Look at this place. It's like you guys got to 1958 and said, <laughs> We're good. This is, uh, I don't know, maybe this is too philosophical for you, but I was thinking about the roast, the concept of the roast, the institution of the roast. And I think that maybe the layman thinks that it's the most aggressive form of comedy. But in a way, what it really does is it's performative. So it's kind of play acting. And it shows that if you can play at being, quote unquote, aggressive, it shows that if you can actually, you know, stick it to your opponent with a barb, and all that results is laughter. It's, in a way, the least aggressive because it's just like uh, certain communities. The, the Inuits do this thing called potlatch where they just burn all their possessions. The outsider's like, what the hell is that? But the insiders know it's about catharsis and it shows that the world's not so oppressive. I think the roast might act, you know, in sort of that way, sociologically speaking. Wow, I really find that so interesting. <laughs> it's probably... You know, something, I don't analyze it that way it would because I feel like product. it would mess yeah, me yeah, up. Yeah. But in a way, I go, yeah, you know, I think T.J. Miller is a funny comedian friend of mine. He, he described the roasting as a, a, a nonviolent form of aggression. Yeah. And I like that because it gets, it's a it, harsh world we live in. Right. And and if during the time when you're visiting aggression upon someone, if the result is laughter, it does take a lot of the scariness out of the aggression. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important to be able to take a joke in life. And, and, and to me, this is the key to to living on, to moving on. When things go bad, you know, you can diffuse it with humor. You can make yourself feel better with humor. But also, you got to be able to take it a little bit. And roasting, in a weird way, prepares you for harsher realities. Ed Larson, I want to thank you. Ed was a producer. Absolutely. Way to go, Ed. Congrats. Ed was a producer on this special. And uh, Jeff Ross is the titular Jeff Ross, and Jeff Ross roasts the border live from Brownsville, Texas. There's a specific date it's on Comedy Central, but you know how TV works. It's on demand all the time. Watch It'll it be on, that's on iTunes, and this is uh, something that'll be up for a while. So it airs on the— Until the border crisis is solved. It's going to air yeah. until—you uh, so know what? Forever. The great thing about this special is I got Mexico to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Ross, thanks very much. Thank you. It was awesome. And now the spiel. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? That was how Christopher Mad Dog Russo used to start off every afternoon on the Mike and the Mad Dog radio show. Although he would say it like this, going to back up from my mic. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? Which, when you really think about it, is almost a placeholder of an introduction. And good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? The Mike and the Mad Dog radio program. But you say it enough. And with a lot of enthusiasm, it becomes a thing. And Mike and the Mad Dog certainly were a thing. They were paired together in 1989. And this is when the format of sports talk radio existed, but was in its infancy. And uh, they, they midwived it along. Sports talk radio has since become one of the most popular formats of AM radio, FM radio too a dying and very dying medium, but not dying before they make billions of dollars. So it's never been the most popular format, but for many years, and it, it, a case can still be made that it's the most remunerative format because the demographic of the sports talk radio listeners, you know, highly educated college women, <laughs> men, 25 to 64, uh, they are 
people that are hard to get in other forms of media. So if you scream about firing the coach or or trading up in the draft, I mean, you're going to get those elusive, elusive 25 to 64-year-old men. Mike and the Mad Dog as a radio show was a really brilliant, compelling pairing. It was something that if you were a little bit interested in sports, you definitely knew about. And if you were a New Yorker, they had a big effect on how sports went in New York. They could get a bee in their collective bonnets and they could rail against a certain decision. And I remember one time there was an 18-year-old kid named Richie Parker who was offered a scholarship to Seton Hall, but he was also accused of raping a girl in a hallway. And I think Seton Hall being a Catholic school really upset Mike Francesa and he just railed against it and railed against it until Richie Parker's scholarship was revoked. Was it good or the right thing to do? I mean, he thought it was. I think it's funny because, and I'm going to get to how the perception of Francesa has swung around. I think that immediately it was seen as an act of justice. You know, bad guy doesn't get into Seton Hall. Then a few years later, and Francesa even talked about that he uh, he wondered if he did the right thing. You know, you did go and descend upon this 50,000 watt radio station descends upon a 17 or 18 year old kid and just upends his life. But now. In the Me Too moment, maybe that, not countenancing a sexual predator, maybe that is seen as the wokest thing Mike Francesa ever did. Francesa was a blowhard and a bloviator. You have to be on that show. Oh, you're out of here. What are you talking about? Wait, wait, where are you getting that from? He did not suffer fools gladly. What are you talking about? He often did not suffer actual smart people gladly. I was not yelling at him. I was yelling at his information, which was totally incorrect. He was really curt with the callers. Listen, when you get back from Ma's call, Okay. Okay. Please. This drove a lot of people mad. And then in 2008, the Mad Dog left. People wondered, well, without the uh, flair and spark of the Mad Dog, such as it were, uh, would Mike Francesa be a door presence on the air who no one wanted to listen to? And the answer is no. He's had the number one book, as he will say, for years and years. He's the most listened to radio station in his time slot. And there's been a Francesa renaissance. There is a Francesa con, which is a convention where people dress up and celebrate Mike Francesa. And I went to it a couple years, covered it really, interviewed the people who started it. And I think most of the people behind it like Francesa ironically. But then after it really grew and grew to, I don't know, a thousand people selling out theaters in New York, it was a mix of irony and appreciation and nostalgia. I mean, it was a little bit like the Donald Trump phenomenon because younger people celebrating grumpy older people in a way that they laughed at and also said it wasn't totally true, but true enough that, you know, you put on a fake mustache and went to Francesicon. You're supposed to look like me. <laughs> I, mean, I used to think I was handsome. <laughs> But here's my big theory with Mike Francesa and why it might be interesting or important to you if you don't care about sports or you don't care about New York. And it's the gatekeeper theory. So Francesa, his career in WFAN spanned two eras, two and a half eras. He started when print was really important and getting the back pages of the New York tabloids meant that you were winning the sports wars. And they invented, essentially invented this thing called sports talk radio. And they became the most important conscience of the sports fan in New York for good or ill. And then the internet came along. And why I say two and a half is he spanned the internet era. 
And originally, when the internet started, it was a way to tear down the old guard. It was a way to storm the barricades. And they did. And Frances's stodginess and the fact that he denigrated the advanced statistics that the stathead community so loved and the fact that he would occasionally make a gaffe on the air, but now it could be shared on the internet and people could laugh at him possibly falling asleep or not knowing that a relief pitcher was an actual relief pitcher and not a fake name that a caller invented. I mean, this could be mocked, and that went on for a while. And this was sort of the uh, liberating, very exciting first years of the internet. But here's the gatekeeper theory. And this is where I think we are as a society. I know it's where I am. I kind of like the gatekeepers. I want some gatekeeping. We've been living with the internet as an unregulated place for a long, long time, and we're beginning to feel the negative consequences of that. Yeah, it was important to give liberalization and a shot of the new into the arm of the old, tired, entrenched media, be it print media or sports talk radio. But then it really became chaotic in a bad way. And it really became at times nihilistic. I would often observe that sports radio and Deadspin, a site like Deadspin, were almost mirror images of each other. They were both strong takes with their differing views on the right or wrong way to conduct oneself as an athlete or, you know, what even to call as a play on fourth down. But with sports talk radio, the participant, the listener, would have to wait on hold for an hour to get two seconds of opinion out there. Uh, this was the democratizing aspect of sports talk radio. Extremely high barriers to entry. With Deadspin, anyone could post any time in the comments section and say as much as they wanted to. Extremely low barriers to entry. So originally it was like, why wait on hold for an hour? My voice can be out there. But then after a few years, you read the comment section, you're like, oh my God, everyone's voice is out there. What are there, no barriers to entry? So the gatekeeper theory says, we're now yearning as a society for certain gatekeepers. Now, the gatekeepers have to be good. The gatekeepers have to be worthy of the job of keeping the gates. I think a lot of the old gatekeepers just had their job because of inertia or because, you know, they were next in line to keep the gate. But Mike Francesa established himself, and right around the time of 2008, when he broke up with the Mad Dog, I think that the backlash of the internet and internet culture was occurring, he established himself as a worthy gatekeeper. The fact that this guy had his opinions, and he was going to tell you his opinions, and if you had a different opinion that wasn't good just because every opinion is good, he'll shoot it down. He also got better. He, like I said, he used to denigrate advanced stats. This might mean nothing to you, but of course, to the people who care, they care, but it's kind of symbolic. It's, it's a new way of thinking about the world. And he used to denigrate them and not think about them just because they, it wasn't what he was used to. But now when he'll talk about how good a player is, he'll cite the player's OPS instead of the batting average. Again, it means nothing to you, but it shows that he's changed a little bit with the times. Another on racial issues. Uh, this guy is not quote unquote woke, but he used to always criticize the rule in the NFL where you had to interview a black candidate for a head coaching job, the Rooney rule. And he had a lot of friends in NFL offices and they would always say how ridiculous it was and what a dog and pony show it was. But he doesn't denigrate that anymore. You know, I never heard the show where he said I was wrong and I don't know if consciously he thinks he's wrong. And if I got a chance to interview him, I'd like to ask about that. But he's definitely done a 180 on it. What I'm saying is he's become a better, more responsible 
responsible gatekeeper at about the same time when society was calling out for good, responsible gatekeepers, people with boundaries and parameters and people where you knew where you stood and also people you knew who they were, right, in this age of Russian bots. And there are others, again, to expand it beyond New York sports and whether Joe Torre should have hit and run in that situation. There are others, I think, who are like this. Dan Rather, I think, is like this. The old stentorian, word of God, anchorman was useless for a time, but now he's had a bit of a renaissance. Hey, you know, here's a guy with some experience who might know what he's talking about. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has experienced this. I don't think she was ever discarded, but rallying around her as a symbol of stolid principles shows that we like our gatekeepers. I think Stephen Colbert, to some extent, you know, when he started his show and when things weren't going well, and this is a little inaccurate because his show on CBS was uh, a bit post-backlash, but I remember, and I've done reports on it, you know, it wasn't shareable and the big flaw with Colbert was unlike Fallon and unlike uh, James Corden, his bits weren't going viral and that was seen as the big thing to do. That was what late shows were. And he tried to do that. It's not that he didn't try, but really, he was recognized as the gatekeeper. I'm going to be the guy who makes these jokes, and every night at 11.35, you tune into me making these jokes. And I wanted to think of a Republican or conservative version of this. I think George H.W. Bush benefits from my gatekeeper theory, just in retrospect. You know what? There is a guy, and again, it's not a perfect analogy, because when he was seen as uncool and not in keeping with the times, it was a little bit pre-internet, right? When he checked out his watch in that debate with uh, Bill Clinton. So yeah, maybe he was a fuddy-duddy, and maybe he wasn't as uh, cool or cutting edge as Bill Clinton was at the time, but not a bad president at all, at all, and a pretty good guy to oversee the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And I think Mike Francesa was some of that, and he got better as he went along, and now he's seen as uh, a lovable, curmudgeonly, and actually extremely informed uncle figure with a great head of hair. Was Mike Francesa influential on me? I do not know. Uh, I don't see so much of myself in Francesa, but I will say this. I was doing the math in my head. I think I've listened to more Mike Francesa on the radio than any other voice on the radio. Uh, Howard Stern I listened to a ton from when I was 10, but he, he hasn't been on the air, and I'm not a serious Satellite subscriber, and I'll listen to it on YouTube, but just him being off the air for 10 years, and you know, when I was uh, in high school, you don't have that much time in the morning to listen to Howard Stern, but every afternoon we'd turn on Mike and the Mad Dog, and home from college, I'd listen to hour-long stretches of Mike and the Mad Dog, and still now, if I'm around an AM radio, and it's 1.20, I'm definitely going to tune into Mike, and I listen to the podcast. So I literally think I have heard Mike Francesa's voice coming through the radio, the radio, or podcast, more than I have heard any other voice, and that must have had an effect. I think Francesca's career will go on. I think that uh, he has talked about some technology-aided next step, which is pretty funny. If you listen to his show, he's talking to his uh, producers about how Uber works just a couple weeks ago. But I do think that it's not just kitsch and it's not just nostalgia that made that guy really important to a lot of people who like sports, like radio, just like good communication. So that is my prediction that Francesa, after 30 years on the air, will be back after this. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who believes in the Flaubert standard, 
which means he declines entreaties from obsequious dry goods dealers named La Rue. Mary Wilson produces the gist. She believes in the eclair standard that a pastry be flaky and the custard be copious, but not overflowing. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, believes in the Lumiere standard, which means all talking candlesticks must have flair, but if possible, adhere to Department of Energy lighting efficiency standards. Be my guest, be my guest, remember, compact fluorescence best. I've been told light-emitting diode beats the incandescent bulb. Be my guest, be my guest, it's the gist. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Have you ever tried a jury trial? I have not. Civil? No. Criminal? No. Bench? No. State or federal court? I have not.